Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCooey.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins Coie White Collar and Investigations Attorneys Marcus Funk and Lily Timmerman are joined by retired Colorado Supreme Court Chief Justice Mike Bender. During their conversation, Justice Bender discusses his experiences as a civil rights attorney, criminal defense counsel, and former chair of the ABA Criminal Justice Section. Justice Bender also shares his thoughts on a wide array of related subjects, including the evolution and state of the criminal justice system, his high-profile defense of white supremacist David Lane, who is charged with the murder of original shock jock Alan Berg, his time as a justice and chief justice of the Colorado Supreme Court, and the do's and don'ts for effective advocacy both within and outside of the courtroom. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Here at the White Collar Briefly mini-pod, every guest is special, but no one is as extra, extra, extra special as Mike Bender, our guest today. He is Dartmouth-educated, University of Colorado-educated. He's a former and reformed New Yorker. He is the uh, former chair of the American Bar Association's Criminal Justice Section, a story defense counsel, as we'll learn about, and also the retired Colorado Supreme Court Chief Justice. A true Colorado original and a national treasure, if I do say so myself. Mike, did I miss anything? Probably, but it's okay. Okay. Well, Mike, we're delighted to have you with us today. I'm Marcus Funk from Perkins Coie. And with me today is Lily Timmerman, also from Perkins Coie, and we're looking forward to having a conversation that will really cover your career, cover what you're doing now, cover some of the things you've seen, and also um, talk a little bit about some tips you have for lawyers coming up and, frankly, also experienced lawyers. So maybe we begin at the beginning, and you can tell us how you escaped New York City. That's a good question. When I was in college, I became friends with several folks that lived out west. So my uh, summer of my sophomore year, I came out to work for construction in Wyoming. And I just fell in love with the mountains. And I thought that Wyoming was a little too sparse from a population standpoint. So I ended up turning down uh, law schools back east and going to University of Colorado Law School. Do you miss it? Do I miss New York City? No, not yeah. at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and so you went to Dartmouth in, in 64 and then got your law degree from the University of Colorado in 67. Tell us a little bit about sort of your law school experience. I know you're active in the law school still. You go and visit once in a while. You've frankly spoken at the, um, what is it called when you become a, a, a lawyer? Commencement. Yeah. No, I never have spoken at the commencement, but I have received some awards from the law school because whenever you get to be a justice, they give you an award. But I really enjoyed law school, and I found my love of the law, really, during that period of time because of the civil rights movement in the 60s, as well as, to some extent, the anti-war movement. So I became pretty involved in various legal matters then as a law student and really liked it a lot found it very worthwhile. So that's a perfect segue into what actually took you to law school. You mentioned that while in law school, you found your love there, but what what drew you to it initially? Well, the truth was that I was a philosophy English major in college. I didn't know what to do. And my father was a pretty well-known lawyer in New York City. 
So I kind of, in part, was running away from my father a little bit by going to the mountains. And I really was a little bit at sea when I started law school. I didn't know what else to do. Part of it was to get a deferment from the Vietnam War, but part of it was I just was searching. And the civil rights movement really captured me. And then I really found a lot of passion and a lot of interest. So given your experience in law school, what memories do you have that you still hold on to now? Well, I have a lot of memories. We had a group called the Law Student Civil Rights Research Council. I started that and chaired it, and we sent people down south to help with various voting rights and integration, working for black lawyers throughout the South in 65 and 66. And some of them have gone on to great careers. And I have a lot of friends from that period of time that I respect. Uh, you know, some people have passed, but a lot of people I still keep in touch with. So I feel very warmly about my experience at law school. And from those great heights of friendships and good memories, what was your first job coming out of law school? My first job? Well, I, I took a job doing graduate work at Georgetown Law School for Sam Dash, who was the Watergate prosecutor, trying to get a master's in criminal law and sociology. So I went to D.C., and that was the height of the anti-war movement. I met, you know, pretty famous lawyers like Mike Tiger and others. And that's what I did for about four or five months. And I also took the Prettyman program, the training of it at Georgetown with Bill Greenhall. But I really wanted to be a lawyer and try cases, so I came back to Denver, got a job as a public defender in Denver, and started there. They had just started the system. So you've had a wide variety of legal positions. I understand you're at the EEOC, you're a public defender in Denver. Tell me a little bit about which of those were your favorite experiences. Well, I I was sort of a, a utility infielder. I had two stints with the state public defender system. I also was in private practice. I worked for the EEOC, and then I had my own firm for about 20 years before I got selected to be on the court. So I enjoyed the whole thing. It was was all a very good experience. I was actually very dedicated to the uh, whole idea of the rule of law and to my role as a lawyer within the system. And so if I were good at interviewing people, I would do this in a chronological fashion, but because I'm not, I won't. So before we get into your experience as a justice. And actually, it it sort of makes sense in a way to talk about this in this order, because I'm curious about how this impacted, frankly, your prospects of becoming a justice. I know, is it fair to say your most famous case was the case involving David Lane, Mike? Would you agree with that? That is true. No question about it. And so David Lane was one of the four defendants, white nationalist defendants, who were charged in the 1984 killing of radio host Alan Berg. And why don't you take us through, no doubt, a high profile, no doubt, a highly controversial case. How did you get involved in it? And what can you tell people about that case who may not be familiar with Alan Berg or or the case? Well, Alan Berg was the first shock jock radio host. He also was a lawyer. He came from Chicago. And he was very outspoken liberal guy. And he apparently antagonized David Lane, who was allegedly the uh, intellectual of the white Aryans. I say that reservedly. And what happened was that Judge Mage, who I had tried several cases in front of, and in my view still is and was by far the best trial judge I ever appeared in front of, asked me to represent David Lane. And at the time, he didn't know that I was Jewish. So I went out and talked to Lane and Lane was very happy because he had the uh, prejudicial view that Jews were good lawyers. So at the time, I I was a court-appointed lawyer. I received some positive feedback for doing that, but also some negative feedback 
But I felt it was my responsibility and duty. For many years, I'd been a believer in the Sixth Amendment right to effective assistance of counsel. And I certainly felt that I owed a great deal of respect to Dick Mage, who ran a great trial. He also was the judge who later presided over the two Oklahoma bombing trials. And in taking that case, was that one of the toughest cases you've ever taken? Or, or was it easy for you, given your philosophical approach to the law? Well, it was a very difficult case on the facts, and it was very depressing reading all this anti-Semitic literature that we had to read to get prepared. But on the other hand, I had been used to representing all kinds of people, from corporations that had problems, to individuals that had problems, to murderers, and so forth. So I think you get fairly clinical. For me, the most difficult thing was all the constant anti-Semitic referrals and mentions in the pleadings, in this testimony, and so forth. But it was an experience, and it was hard. It was a long trial, and we did our best, but uh, lost. Did Lane or his Confederates ever expose you to anti-Semitic comments or not? No, I can't say that they did. There were times when we had to meet in special circumstances with all four of the defendants who were very heavily guarded, all the lawyers together. And occasionally Lane, who allegedly was the intellectual leader, would kind of give me a hard time, not because I was Jewish, but just generally to show that he was still a boss. And the other defendants would tell him to shut up, that kind of thing. But no, I, he never did. Now, Mike, you mentioned that the defense was unsuccessful, but the, he was not convicted of homicide, wasn't he? No, it was conspiracy to deprive Allenberg of his civil rights and to kill him basically because he was Jewish. Have you had contacts with him once he was in jail, or was he one of those cases where— no, I had no contact. No, he, he apparently passed away six, seven years ago in custody. He had already been convicted in Washington federal court on various bank robbery charges, conspiracy to commit bank robbery. And so if that was maybe the toughest or the most high-profile case you've had, are there any other cases that you think we should know about? Yes. When I was a very young lawyer, I just started out in, I think it was 1971, left the public defender's office. I handled a discrimination case on behalf of women and blacks and Latinos to gain entry into the Denver Police Department. And we were successful in front of the then Chief Judge Alfred Raj in getting a court order ordering the changes. And that particular order is still in effect today. And I think from a practical matter, that was by far the most significant case I've had. Because there's no question that there are women serving on the force and also uh, many minorities in Denver today. Yeah, thank you for that. That was early on in your career? 71, yes. Wow. I just started out. Civil rights statutes had just been passed at that time. They didn't cover municipalities. There were one or two suits that under 1983 that covered a state or subsections of the state, cities and counties. Now, we all know, we remember from law school, people who every word they said, everything they did, they did it in a very calculated fashion to maximize the chances that they would become a magistrate judge someday or perhaps something even more optimistic or reaching. I get the sense you're not one of those types of people having known you for a bit. And I would also imagine that you had friends who said, hey, man, what are you doing? You can't take this Nazi on because, you know, your career is going to essentially be over. But obviously, those people were wrong because you were appointed to the Supreme Court on January the 2nd of 1997, I believe. And then you took over as Chief Justice in 2010 and retired as Chief Justice in 2014. Just a practical question, or maybe it's a political question, is were you surprised when you were nominated? I mean, you did a tremendous amount of great, great cases. Uh, All of them are great cases. But obviously, these are kind of tricky cases to have handled. Were you surprised 
Were your friends surprised that you were elected to join that august body? Sure. The answer is yes. <laughs> One of my buddies uh, gave me a big party when the governor selected me out of the three persons that were nominated by the Judicial Nominating Commission. And he gave me a toast and he said, this is to Bender, who was just as surprised about the governor's appointment as we all are. And, <laughs> and I think that's right. At the time, I was pretty active in the ABA and NACDL, and I was told that I was the first person in that era who had been a criminal defense lawyer to be appointed to the highest court in the state. There have been other public defender types, criminal defense lawyers subsequently that have joined either the federal bench or state bench, but I think I was the first one at that time. And the term I was searching for earlier was swearing in. You've sworn in so many lawyers around the state of Colorado and elsewhere. But one question both Lily and I as former law clerks have is, you know, when you think about going to law school and you're lucky enough to get a clerkship, you want to do a good job, of course. And I'm not going to ask a lot more about the Supreme Court because that's exciting, but not as exciting as some of the other stuff you've done. So any tips to the aspiring law clerk as to how to do a particularly good job? You know, things that characteristics you saw that really made people stand out as law clerks? Well, one thing I learned was that each judge is very different about how their their relationship with their clerks. And so I've never been able to predict who would be a good clerk for which judge and that sort of thing. In terms of my own criteria, I always wanted to have somebody, first of all, that had pretty academic credentials, who liked writing, had a history of writing. And the second thing, and probably the most important thing, was that I had an interview with them and I liked them because I knew I had to work closely with them for at least a year. And that to me was very important, probably the most important thing. So I think it's very subjective. I don't have any great advice. My daughter clerked for the Federal District Court and then she clerked for Neil Gorsuch when he was on the Tenth Circuit. And I advised her not to be a law clerk, and she's very happy now. Now, why would you give someone that horrible advice, Mike? Well, because I turned down two clerkships when I graduated law school. I wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) I didn't want to watch what was happening. I wanted to be involved. And to me, that was more important. And some people are like that. Well, speaking of that, and and before we turn it over to Lily, kind of two more questions. One is, you know, you wanted to be involved And one of the reasons, principal reasons, some people will give for not seeking an appointment to the bench is because they feel it's too insulated. And obviously, the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court is even more so from the sort of day-to-day in the trenches warfare of a practicing attorney. Did you miss that aspect of the practice of law when you ascended to the bench? Yeah, a little bit. Although I found that being on the Supreme Court gave me a platform that I never had as a lawyer. As you well know, when you're in private practice, you have to keep track of your hours. You have to pay attention to what you're doing so that you're being economically productive. But on the Supreme Court, I had the opportunity to attend a lot of meetings, to go to see a lot of different judges and stuff, even before I became the Chief Justice. So it was a great opportunity for me to be uh, much closer to a lot of the judges and to many members of the bar and to have a better sense of the geographical diversity of this state. Now, I mentioned you ascending to the court, and then you, I guess, I don't know if that's the right term, but descended in 2014. And you mentioned some guy named Gorsuch. I, I signed it kind of rings a bell, but did you ever have a, another run-in with this fellow uh, once you left the bench? Yeah, it wasn't a run-in. Right. The very first oral argument I had in the Tenth Circuit, Judge Gorsuch was on the panel. And of course, I knew Judge Gorsuch. And I was pretty nervous. It was a a fairly large civil case on behalf of a Perkins client. And anyway, things were going pretty good for about 20 minutes. I was starting to feel comfortable. 
And then the argument itself was in the 10th Circuit Library, where the platform was very close, no more than eight or nine feet away from the judges. It was a small courtroom. And Judge Gorsuch then asked me about this 10th Circuit case, that they have to overrule this case in order to rule in my favor. And I hadn't read the case, but I had read the headnote. So I answered him quite improperly, and he kept on peppering me. And in about three or four minutes, I was feeling pretty embarrassed. And so somehow, for some reason, I can't explain it, I said, well, Your Honor, I'm pretty nonplussed by your concern about this case. And Judge Gorsuch said to me, well, counsel, it's not your job to be nonplussed anymore. And uh, that's a little vignette which I will never forget. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> it is a good one. As a young associate, that is a nightmare to imagine, but impressive how you handled it. I'm going to go back to a question that, you know, I understand that you don't think that there's a way to navigate a path to the bench, but you've gotten to do so many interesting and amazing things in your career. What do you think is the aspect of you or the personality trait that got you exposure to all these amazing cases, interesting work, a diversity of experience? How does that happen for someone in a career? I think, first of all, I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time for a lot of things. And I think that you have to have perseverance. You have to have a social ability to get along with a lot of people. And you also have to be a good and skilled trial lawyer, whatever kind of lawyer you are. You have to deal with all kinds of personalities. And that's true with judges. I tried many cases in front of pretty well-known federal judges, state judges, even JP courts in other states. So you have to, I think, have an ability to be, have some sort of social skills. And I think I was lucky, fundamentally. I can remember <laughs> when I was in my last year in college, I had a very famous professor who taught us psychoanalytic theory. And I took one of those cooter inventory tests, you know, and it said I should be a therapist, a psychoanalyst. <laughs> <laughs> And so I went and chatted with the professor, you know. I had done pretty well in his classes. And he said, you know, Mike, that's a big mistake. He said, you got much too much of an outgoing personality to be a therapist. And I think that was right. So I was lucky, and I had the proper help at the time and some of the skills to get me there. And I lost a lot of cases, too. And I've had some disadvantages, too. You know, I've had some hardships, not in all one bed of roses. Well, so to lean a little bit more on that uh, extensive experience and diversity of experience, obviously we're in unprecedented times right now. We don't need to rehash all of the ways in which the pandemic is changing our experiences. But I did want to ask you, with your long perspective and long view on this, what do you think has really changed for lawyering during this pandemic? What do you think is fundamentally different about not having in-person contact? Well, first of all, I think that it's an evolutionary change. And I've noticed that since joining Perkins Coie. And that is that everything is much more digitalized. And we're online all the time. And there's very little personal contact from hearings in front of judges, to dealing with clients, to dealing with associates, to dealing with partners, to dealing with folks on the other side. So I think that's just accelerated the process. I say somewhat jokingly, but, uh, you know, young people today can practice a lot of their iPhone. And uh, I think that the pandemic is accelerating that process. And that, to me, is the biggest difference. It's interesting because, you know, you said it's evolutionary, but this feels again, from a very limited perspective, like a seismic shift for us, you know, having a client 
in person while you're remote, it all feels very strange. Do you think that there's been anything equivalently disruptive or as big of a change in the legal practice as this pandemic has been? Has there been some other aspect in your, you know, four decades of practice that made such a big impact? Five decades. No, I can't think of anything. I think the pandemic is much more of a disruptive force. I had a brief conversation with the current chief justice in state court. Ben Coates a couple of weeks ago, and I don't envy the problems that he's facing. They're very, very difficult, and the solutions are not easy because of the pandemic, and I think it's going to have a major change in the practice of law. I don't exactly know how it's going to all pan out, but there's no question in my mind that it's a severe disruption, as you put. You're right. You know, and one of the things, I mean, we talk about sort of how much more distance there is now between us as lawyers and courts, you know, let alone jury trials. And I actually remember, do you remember this bit of advice you gave me early on when I left the government? In the government, for those of you listening who are not familiar with it, and for that matter, for those of you who are, Uh, When you do jury selection, certainly in Chicago, in the federal courtroom, you as a prosecutor are essentially sort of there to fill the judge's, you know, water jug and to ask, you know, one or two follow-ups like, does that make you incapable of being a fair and impartial juror? But beyond that, your job is uh, somewhat uh, limited. Then my first civil case was a jury trial down in Miami State Court. And, And Mike, do you remember the advice when it came to jury selection that you gave me? Yes, I do. (laughs) I remember telling you that jurors are influenced by feelings and emotions and that you have to share your own emotions and feelings with the jurors first in order to get them to uh, respond to you in a way that you can make a decision about whether to keep that juror. It's very hard to do that. Women are far better at it than men. And what I used to do is write it in my hand, feelings, you know, what are they? Sad, deep, happy, so forth. And from, at least in a lot of the cases I tried, I always picked out what my biggest fear was in the case. And I would tell the jury that. And then that would be a way that I would open up myself to have them discuss what their feelings were, which is very hard to do. I do remember that. And then I remember telling you, I'm sure I did, that if a juror tells you that they're really biased against your case for whatever reason, you thank that juror profusely for being open and honest. Studies show that the biggest fear on jury selection, for jurors in jury selection, is public speaking and speaking whatever they're really feeling. It's very difficult to do in that kind of setting. I'm frantically taking notes over here and also maybe starting to understand why someone might have thought you would have made a good therapist, Chief. I don't know about that. My wife's the therapist. (laughs) Well, the net outcome, of course, was I didn't write any feelings on my hand, but I started with something like, I woke up this morning so scared. I was so scared that you'd be biased against our client. And our clients were basically all the orange growers in Costa Rica. The defendant was DuPont. And at the end of it, I must have laid it on so thick, you know, for the first time being freed up like this, that when I was done, the jurors started clapping and the judge (laughs) literally fell out of his chair laughing, and he called it the clapping jury selection. Well, I think that's a great tribute to what you did. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. I've never heard of a jury clapping for the voir dire of, of a lawyer. Jerry Spence was never able to do that. Yeah, hey, you know, it was a good start, and the result ended up being a, a good jury verdict in our favor. So I think you're right, because I do remember the other side getting up and in somewhat less flamboyant fashion, you know, going through some questions that sounded more like an inquest of the jury, and they didn't seem to like that at all. But great advice from an experienced practitioner. 
And speaking of great advice from an experienced practitioner, you know, one of the things Lily and I talked about is, you know, we've had a chance to discuss is you have a lot of opinions about the practice of law, changes in the practice of law, trends that you've observed that are maybe good, maybe not so good. You talked about some of them being the distance that's created by folks practicing law essentially on a keyboard. From your perspective, both regionally, a Colorado perspective, as well as a national perspective, do you have any trends that you've observed? And again, this is an uncertain time, so who knows what the future of a jury trial looks like, at least in the short term. But do you have any thoughts on trends you've observed? And again, this is sort of think about giving advice to the recent law school graduate or junior associate, or for that matter, person who just joined a, a public defender or, or a state's attorney's office. Any advice for them from an advocacy perspective? Sure. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, well, first of all, if you're talking about trial advocacy, I, which I think is totally different than appellate advocacy. And there's two kinds of appellate advocacy. There's error correction in the court of appeals type or a cert court like the Supreme Court where I was on. But I think that trial judges, both federal and state, are just very, very busy. And they have all kinds of work to do. And this pandemic, of course, makes it even worse. And so lawyers have to, I think, take a different tack, which is not to be so bombastic and aggressive in what they say and how they say it against their opponents. And it requires a different tenor or tone, depending on what you're doing. But I think on a trial level, you have more leeway if you're in front of a judge, and even more leeway if you're in front of a jury. The jury likes someone that really stands up for their client, no matter what side they're on and does so in a quasi-emotional way. As you go higher up the chain in terms of the court system, the error court, and certainly in the Supreme Court, it becomes far less important about the specific client but the policy that court has to decide. And there always is an internal conflict between, as an advocate, between what the client wants and what you think may be persuasive to the court. And it's oftentimes very helpful for you to admit, first of all, that the other side makes good points but happens to be wrong for these reasons. And clients don't like you to do that. Clients want you to 100% take their side. And that's a very difficult needle to thread and dance to take. I think that the best advice you can give someone, at least in front of a state Supreme Court argument like my court was, is to pretend that you're writing the opinion. And if you're going to write the opinion, you have to answer all the questions that are raised by the opponents or somebody who might write a dissent. One of the problems I had when I first got appointed to the court, the public defender's appellate division wanted me to talk to them about what tips do I have about appearing in front of the court. And I told them, forget about the horrible plight of the defendant. Forget about that. That case that they take on certiorari is an example for the state to set a policy matter that either absolves conflicting uh, precedent, maybe sets a little new ground, maybe not. And it's very difficult for lawyers that are dedicated to accept that and understand that. The less you demean the other side, the more respect all the judges will have. And sometimes that's very hard to do. I know that as a trial lawyer, sometimes I would get very upset and angry and I'd lose it a little bit and I'd always regret it later. You know, you can't help at that. We're all human. But you have to try to really restrain yourself. And now, I mean, this is really going to take a, a stretch for you, Mike, but prosecutors, obviously, I, I see it's a gap in your professional history. No, that's not right. I was I, I worked for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as a law clerk 
<laughs> okay, okay. We'll put a little asterisk on that one. I know this is a dangerous question, but Mike, from your perspective, what advice would you give? I mean, you've been across from prosecutors in every kind of courtroom and every kind of courthouse around the country and have seen everything, I'm sure, from highly ethical to maybe less so. From your perspective as sort of a professional consumer of prosecutorial services, what have you seen, what types of characteristics uh, have you seen that you think really make out for a really good prosecutor? And what have you seen that you think brings disrepute to prosecutors? I don't know if it brings disrepute, but I think that what always worried me was the prosecutor who was sort of, you know, willing to give all the benefits to the defendant, the presumption of innocence, the proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But, you know, just didn't happen in this case because the facts are who downplayed things, who was very matter-of-fact in his or her presentation. Those that got angry were often easy to exploit in some way or another. So I think that from my perspective, I don't know about ruining ethical responsibilities of prosecutors, but I think the most effective ones were those that underplayed the facts and very simply, you know, sort of like the dragnet kind of thing where just the facts, ma'am, here's what happened. And you know, this is what your job is. You got to do that and should do that rather than be really super flamboyant. The more emotional they got, I thought the less effective they were with a jury. So we short-circuited the conversation a little bit about your experience on the Supreme Court, but that's obviously a big part of your career. So can you tell us the most unique parts of being on the Supreme Court and what that experience was like for you? Well, it was the highlight of my professional career. There's no question about it. I think initially, and for many years, just the idea of participating in a collegial court where we decided legal issues that we thought were in the best interest of the state was just a phenomenal opportunity, and I appreciated it. And there's a lot of talent on that court, and I found it very, very rewarding. Secondly, I think that my experience as Chief Justice, because of the uniqueness of our state system, we're centrally financed, and the Chief Justice under the Constitution is the administrator for the budget and the entire judicial system. And there's like not quite 4,000 judicial employees, about 350 judges, and a huge budget. So you have to lobby, you have to make policy decisions and nurture improvements in the system that go beyond just decisional making. So that opportunity was great. And probably the single greatest thing for me was my experience over 13 years in creating legislation, creating the funding, and then having a hand in the building and the design of the building that became the Colorado Supreme Court Ralph Carr Building. Ralph Carr was the Colorado governor who opposed the Japanese internment, and for that he paid a very severe, horrible political price. But he was a great, great human being and we named the courthouse after him. And that experience was crowned by having uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor come and designate the courthouse in, uh, I think it was May of 2014. So all of that was wonderful for me and a great experience. Nothing that I had previously imagined or could dream of for myself. So I feel very lucky to have had that entire experience. 
What a wonderful way to end our conversation, Mike. It is really a true honor and a true pleasure for you to join us today. I am incredibly grateful that uh, we get to work together. We get to have lunch together. You get to share all of your wisdom with all of us. And it is a great amount of joy. I feel that you're, you were able to share those experiences with you. And, and as we predicted, you know, we I'm sure Lily and I both learned things about you and frankly about the state of Colorado that we didn't know ahead of time. And uh, again, want to thank you very much for spending your time with us today. I appreciate it a lot. It's a great honor to be with both of you. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.